Uh, my approach when I talk about you know, um, things from in these convos is really to speak about them from the vantage point of Christian faith, but you will probably notice, well, I hope you know, I don't regard um, or don't assume that everybody here is a Christian or wants to be or even knows what Christianity is about. Um, and I actually think that one of the main purposes of these convos is for me to speak in particular to people who consider themselves Christians about areas in which Christians have often not been faithful to what the Bible says. I think that that's helpful for Christians. I also think that's helpful for people who aren't Christians, whether they want to be or not, to at least understand the difference between Christianity and Christians. I think it's actually one of the most important things that, um, that uh, somebody like myself can, can help both Christians and non-Christians with. So you will, you will hear me really speaking to some of the problems that Christians have had in thinking about popular culture, and they are, there are a lot of them, and then connecting that to what the Bible says, which I think will actually help people who are Christians and not Christians make sense of all of life. Um, C.S. Lewis, you guys probably heard of C.S. Lewis, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and some other books, and he said one time, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but because by its light I see everything else. Uh, my understanding of, of truth is that the that truth is a path that you walk on. It's not necessarily something where you can sort of be in a neutral position where you stand back and examine all the facts and then step forward. Rather, truth is something that you continue to walk on the path, and if you really are walking on the path of truth, it will open up your eyes to more truth. And so when we address these sorts of topics, I, I want to talk about them from the vantage point of Christian faith, and I hope that you will say, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense of both the wonder and the wretchedness of the human condition in a way that few other things can. Uh, hopefully you'll hear me say today that I believe that people who are not Christians are actually in a dialogue, whether they realize it or not, with what God has said. And it's a conversation that Christians need to be hearing because it will help them understand their neighbor, and love your neighbor is one of the basic um, things that Christians are called to be about, but it will also help Christians even understand themselves because my contention is that even people that don't express belief in Christianity often hear things that God has said more clearly than people who follow Jesus. Um, and unfortunately, most of the time Christians are too afraid to admit that. Though, it, you know, it's really interesting. I've been reading this fascinating book, Body Piercing Saved My Life. Anybody know this book? Have anybody read it? Nobody? Y'all need to read this book. Um, it's written by a guy who's a senior editor at Spin. He's not a Christian. He says, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Jew or a Muslim. In fact, to call myself an atheist would be too much of a commitment. Uh, and yet he spends quite a lot of time doing very in-depth research and examination of the Christian music industry. So it's a fascinating book to read, especially if you're a Christian, especially if you're thinking about what you think about this weird thing that we have that we call the Christian music industry, which if you're in Nashville, you probably know about, um, for good and for worse. And he, anyway, it's really fascinating to hear sort of how he hears the kinds of things that Christians are saying. And what's fascinating to me is Christians should have said half the things he's saying in this book. But I don't know of a comparable book where Christians have even noticed the things that he notices about them. It's really a shame. And of course, you won't find this, I don't think, at Lifeway or at Family Christian or any of the Christian bookstores, and yet it's probably one of the most important books that Christians who are considering being in the arts could ever read. And uh, anyway, so I commend that to you. Body Piercing Saved My Life, based on a, uh, a t-shirt 
that maybe some of you own. I don't know. Um, the guy's name is Andrew, I think it's Bujon, B-E-A-U-J-O-N. Um, very fair, very perceptive um, book. Anyway, all right, so culture. Here, here's, here's, I guess, one of my basic contentions. Um, oh, I was going to pass these out if, if you're interested. And I know that if you get on this email list, we'll send you emails about things we have coming up, convos, special events. And if you want to get off, just say, get me off the list. We'll take you off the list. Um, but know that. Don't sign this unless you're interested, because we'll always put um, signs up and convos that we do will always be on BIC, okay? But some of you may be here and say, huh, that sounds interesting. I'd be more interested in hearing about other stuff you guys are doing. So we'll give you that opportunity. Okay. Um, a book I came across when I was in college really helped me a lot is um, a book actually by a stu student of C.S. Lewis. It's a guy named Harry Blaymeyers. I know it's a horrible cover, but this, you know, the book came out in 1964, and this is you know, the 1964 edition. Um, it's called The Christian Mind. And what this book is basically about is this guy who was um, for a long time um, trained pastors in a theological college, which is what they call seminaries over in England. Then he went and he taught English and actually wrote a book on James Joyce Ulysses that they still use at a lot of colleges, one of the, the best books in understanding um, what Joyce is getting at. Um, he said, you know, in 1964, he said, look, I look around and I see that there is no Christian mind, that Christians are not thinking Christianly about all of life. They may think about things that we call Christian things, like quiet times and evangelism and worship, but they're not thinking Christianly about all of life. And he goes into this book and he talks about what a Christian mind, uh, someone who thinks Christianly about all of life, somebody who takes to heart what Lewis says about seeing, using Christianity as a lens rather than just always talking about Christianity. Um, he says that, that if, if that were true, um, that we would be able to articulate for people why, why love is so powerful, why we have such a concern for justice or should have a concern for justice. Why, can, why, why are we moved by the beauty of a sunset? Why, does, why do, you know, can we get you know, just you know, our heart rate can go up, we just go nuts at a sporting event? Why? why? See, he says most of the time Christians don't ever connect the faith to all of those things that are everyday, normal, and very powerful experiences of people in our world. And when we don't connect Christianity to those things, we end up proclaiming to Christianity that is less than what Christianity really is. That's part of what I guess I want to say with this um, convo today, is that when Christians think about popular culture, generally they've pursued one of two strategies, sometimes both at the same time. They tend to disengage from it, and then at the same time that they've disengaged from it, they actually you know, are tempted to sort of create their own alternative version of it over, over here in the corner. I mean, you know, all know about the Christian subculture and how strange that is. But you see, the Bible, the Bible says that Christians should never disengage from the culture that they're part of. Separation is unbiblical. It is. Uh, the very last prayer that Jesus uttered is in John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 17. And he says specifically, Father, I pray for those who will come to faith through the witness of these apostles. So anybody that follows Jesus in these days, Jesus is talking about them. He says, I pray for them that they would be in the world, but not of it. That they would be in the world, but not of it. That they would be separate or sanctified, is more, more kind of a biblical word, that basically means set apart by the truth. Your word is truth. What Jesus prays specifically for is that his people 
would be in the world, and yet it wouldn't define them. That their separation, what makes them distinctive and different, is not their proximity to things that they think are bad, or their lack of proximity, pulling away from things that they think are bad, whether it be certain places or certain neighborhoods or certain um, cultural artifacts or whatever it is. Jesus says, no, that shouldn't be what defines you. What should define you is that you would be in the midst of that. You would be in the world, and yet you would be defined. You would take your touchstone of what is real from my word, from the truth. And yet, unfortunately, Christians, when they think about pop culture in particular, have regarded it either as evil or as trivial. Uh, particularly in the last 120, 150 years, Christians have have really regarded popular culture as either, they've either dismissed it or they've regarded it as dangerous because it will um, demote the taste of good cultured Christian people, or they have regarded it as, you know, basically the kind of thing that is going to corrupt the morals of our pure young people. Now, that of course is a real misunderstanding, or sort of springs from a misunderstanding in the evangelical Christian community of some very important basic ideas about Christianity. Ideas about revelation, what God has said and where he said it, about sin, which if you ever talk to an evangelical Christian for a few minutes, you should pick up on the fact that sin is something that they talk about and think is an important concept, uh, and grace. What I'm saying is the way evangelicals deal with popular culture exposes a thinness in their understanding of revelation, sin, and grace, which if you're a Christian, that should be of particular concern to you because those are you know, really three of some of the most important topics that there are in the Bible and what it means to understand being a Christian. Now, to get at this, you need to understand what do we mean by culture. I, I, what I mean by culture is, is really not necessarily like, well, the, you know, the whole high art, low art, kind of, you've maybe heard this sort of thing, that there's some things that are culture, that the, the highest products of human creativity and imag imagination, the things that come close to this perfect ideal of what humans can be, and then there are other things that are more crass and commercial. I think that, those, that, that that dichotomy is not very helpful at all. I think that there's all kinds of problems with it. I think in a lot of times it's actually racist in its um, basic perspective. And I think that what's more important for us to, to understand as we think about culture is that culture is a map of reality. Culture is a way of saying something about the world. Now I know the Christian or the secular theorists, the people who would not regard themselves as Christians, who think about culture, um, they agree with that at a level, but they would go even beyond where I would go and say that culture is merely an expression of arbitrary um, will to power. In other words, um, culture is not connected to anything real. It's just sort of the labels or the definitions that we put upon things generally to oppress people. And I know that that happens. But what I want to advance in this convo is that what, what the Bible should tell Christians is that all culture is actually interacting with what God has said. Now, now why do I say that? Um, well, I, I say that for, for a reason about this understanding of revelation. The Bible says, that God doesn't just speak through the Bible, but through his creation. The Christians understand, if they, if they follow the Bible, they understand, and this is what Christians have believed, um, that, that God has spoken creation into being, and everything that exists is stamped with meaning. 
Not only that, the Bible says that sin has affected everything. Not just the things that are outside of the walls of the church, but sin has affected us as well. And so when we look at the world, we look at a world and we look at everything in the world, we should, as being created by God and stamped with meaning. God doesn't just create things. There are no neutral facts in the universe. Everything, everything speaks something about it. In Psalm 19, for instance, the psalmist declares, the heavens declare your glory. And the word used there is, is an active proclamation kind of word. The creation is preaching, it's proclaiming, it's screaming, if you will, about the meaning. And yet, this, this creation, this speaking of God, has been distorted and muted by sin entering into the world, and there is nothing that escapes that distortion. I think one of the, one of the big problems with Christians thinking that they can separate from evil things and sort of keep evil things like popular culture evil at bay is, is they really don't understand how insidious sin is. They end up having really a deeply unbiblical view of sin that says sin is somehow um, only the actions that you do, when Jesus clearly says that everything you do flows out of your heart. Um, they think that sin can be sort of recognized and clearly seen in all kinds of different, um, different things produced by Christian, non-Christians, but they tend to not see it in, in their own life and in their own um, cultural productions. I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a friend of mine years ago, um, I knew from Boston days, who came down to Nashville to be a singer-songwriter. Very talented girl, um, a woman now. She's my age, and I'm getting old, so I guess I can't call her a girl anymore. But she, um, she was being courted by some Christian record companies as well as some folk music companies. And it was really fascinating kind of being her friend, walking through that process with her, because she, she was, well, she was rather overweight girl. And it was fascinating to me that the folk music companies really didn't care. But that was a deal breaker for every Christian record company. Later I had a friend of mine say, you know, go, and I'll challenge you this way too, go to Tower Records, go, go to, you know, Borders, go anywhere where they have a section of Christian music, and look at the album covers, and I defy you to find an ugly person who's a Christian artist. You, maybe somebody can think of somebody. It's, it's pretty rare. And, and, and more likely they're going to be an indie artist than, than somebody signed to one of the major Christian record companies. Now they will say, well, it's because, you know, this is what the Christian public wants. And I, I think that's a cop-out. I think that, you know, we should be challenging the culture, not just um, acquiescing to it. But I'm telling you, beauty, the issue of beauty and where your significant lies is often more oppressive in the Christian subculture than it is in the culture at large. Now, it's a problem in the culture at large. It's a huge problem in the culture at large. And yet, it's no better. At least, it's no better. I think it's actually worse in the Christian community. Why? Well, because Christians, you see, here's the problem with separating themselves. When they regard, them, you know, sort of the people out there are bad and the people in here are good, it makes them not very discerning about looking at themselves and their own community. That, you know, it's so interesting how, you know, how many messages you get from Christian music that portrays to you or says to you that if you love Jesus, everything will be wonderful in your life. Now, the Bible doesn't give us any justification to say that. 
If you look at the music of the Bible, the Psalms, there are more of them about life is really hard and I wonder where you are, God, than there are, hey, everything's wonderful. I'm so glad I know Jesus. But that's not what you get from Christian radio. I remember when we were in Christian music and how many of our songs, they said, we can't play this on Christian radio. Why? Because we confess that we're a sinner and that the world is a broken place? Yeah, people don't want to hear it. Great. Um, this shouldn't be. We separate ourselves, feel like we're safe, and then we turn off our minds and we un, un, you know, unwittingly imbibe all kinds of really wrong notions about, about race, about beauty, about material wealth, all kinds of things. And you know it because you go to churches. And I know, you know one of the great things about being young is you still haven't been totally sort of assimilated into the, into the mainstream upper middle class culture. You're still fighting against it. I hope you will never stop fighting against it. I hope that becoming a Christian will make you fight against it more. It should. And yet the fact is, Christians, by separating themselves, have often become more like the culture they think they're trying to separate themselves from. Isn't that fair? Well, more life um, live, you will have no doubt that that's, that that's true. Um, the evangelical engagement, or the lack of it, um, is, is a deep problem. Not only, well, the, the main thing is we just miss so, so many opportunities to hear what God has said. Let me, let me, again, go back to this idea. You know, everything in creation, the Bible says, is an example of God speaking. Everything he's made is stamped with meaning. And that means that from a Christian perspective, I don't care how much somebody curses God, doesn't want to have anything to do with God. As a Christian, my understanding is that they are interacting with God's stuff that's stamped with meaning. Whether they recognize it or not, I as a Christian recognize that they are interacting with God. They may be hearing things, even if they don't know where they're hearing it from, that speaks truthfully about the world in which they live. And, and here's the thing, often it does. I, I think about the music of Patty Griffin. Great example. You guys know Patty Griffin, you're fans of her. You know, there's amazing songwriters who are so perceptive about the human condition. Uh, often, now, you know, if you read interviews with her, her basic kind of situation is life sucks, but you just kind of keep walking. Uh, a song like Making Pies, right? Really, that whole album expresses that in a nutshell. And yet she says it so wonderfully and powerfully with these vignettes of life that are just so amazing. Uh, but a message that Christian radio would not play. Why? I don't, I don't know why, because the book of Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. And it says life is frustrating. Though there are moments of joy that you can find in your wife, you take joy in your wife and in your work, all the miserable days of this frustrating life, the book of Ecclesiastes says. I don't know if you've ever heard a Christian song like that. I don't know if you've ever sang that kind of song in church, but that's what the book of Ecclesiastes says. Well, it's no wonder that Christians have had a hard time with the book of Ecclesiastes um, because it expresses doubts. And we feel like, gosh, how could we express doubts? Unbelievers may hear us. And then why would they be attracted to people who have doubt? Give me a break. One of the most important things for you to do if you would have people understand what Christianity is about is that you be honest, you be real. I, I can't tell you how frustrating it is to me to meet Christian students who sit down over a cup of coffee and say, I'm not sure I'm a Christian because I struggle with this and I feel this and sometimes I even doubt this. And I say, well, have you read the Psalms? seems to me that your experiences are pretty standard for people who follow God. Um, the problem is you've been sold a bill of goods. You've been sold a map of reality that says if you're a Christian, you should expect this kind of life. But you didn't get that from the Bible. 
You might have got it from Christians, I'm afraid to say. You probably got it from Christian pop culture, but you didn't get it from the Bible. It's not what the Bible says reality is about. Um, so here's the thing. You know, the Bible says that we should expect that non-Christians hear things and can speak about them in ways that are powerful and rich and true. The idea of general revelation, that God speaks in all of creation into being, is that everything is stamped with meaning. Everything that pop culture uses in its creation, everything that it praises, everything that it critiques, everything that it wrestles with, as a Christian, I believe it's stamped with God's meaning. And at times, God's meaning breaks through anyway. See, I think often what happens is, this is, again, true of Christians and non-Christians, because sin is not just out there, it's in here, it's in my heart. And so I take things, that God has stamped with meaning, and I try and make it say something else. For instance, God gives us a job, gives us work to do, not only just so that we can have money, so that we can do what we want, but, you know, the Bible says, really, it's so that you can glorify God and be participating in his work of reclaiming creation and bringing about the God-glorifying potential that he built into this world. And it's, and it's huge, and it's manifold, and it is in so many areas, right? It's a huge task. And you know, God's people are called to be part of that. And yet, most of God's people view work not as participation in God's kingdom, in, in being a creative person after God's own image, but they view it as a way to sort of cordon off a little life for myself. There's a man named Francis Schaeffer who said, basically, people in America want personal peace and affluence. That's what they live for. They want, they want personal peace. They want to be left alone, and they want enough money so that they can guarantee they'll be left alone. Tell me about it. I lived in Williamson County. I know. Um, I moved up to Nashville, and it's such a different world, even to go from Williamson County to Davidson County. The way my neighbors actually want to have relationships. People move to Williamson County to get away from the world, whether Christians or non-Christians. Now, you may say, well, that's not me, but you're living in a dangerous place if you're trying to fight against that. You have to know that. Here, here's the thing. That's stamped with meaning. Work is stamped with meaning. And if you try and use your work or your talents or your gifts to say something else or to build your own kingdom, it will break. It will break under the weight of that because it was never meant to say that. I'll give you another example I think is, is maybe even a more powerful one, sex. Now, you understand that there are lots of different maps of reality about what your sexuality is for. The Bible's map of reality is not that sex is bad. It's not that it's a necessary evil, though there have been some really well-regarded Christians who taught that kind of nonsense like Augustine, even great Christian leaders who have taught really wrong ideas about sex. But the Bible says sex is something God has given you for bonding, for covenant commitment. It's a way that God has given you to say, not I think you're really hot, but I'm committed to you. Now, of course, in our culture, there are all kinds of ranges of views about what sex means. Some will say sex is just a biological function. Just like when you get hungry, you eat. When you get, feel sexy, you sex. And that, right? Now, C.S. Lewis, Lewis is a great critique. C.S. Lewis is a great critique of that kind of thinking. That would basically be sort of modern scientific naturalism. And C.S. Lewis says, imagine, you know, if you went to this island or you went to this town and, you, you know, walked into this, into this nightclub and, you know, the lights are turned down low and, you know, up on the stage with the spotlights on it is this, you know, something. You can't tell what it is, but there's this curtain. Um, covering it, 
and and there's the, the music, dun, 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 right? And all the, and everybody's like hooping and hollering, and they rip off the sheet, and it's a hamburger. Now he said you would either conclude that these people are starving, or that something is seriously wrong. But listen, don't tell me that sex is just a biological function. It's closer to worship than it is a biological function. And you know that. You know that if you've had sex, you feel married. And it's not just because of cultural conditioning. From a Christian perspective, it's because it was stamped with that meeting. And you may try to make it say something else. But I, I suspect that God's meaning keeps breaking through, sometimes in really uncomfortable ways, sometimes in ways that are really inconvenient. And yet, the Bible says God has not left himself without a witness. Um, this is the thing about general revelation. But understand this. Sometimes, often, non-Christians speak about the beauty and the gift that sex is more powerfully than Christians do. That's crazy, but it's true. Um, you know, actually, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says to some people who are not Christians, who are not Jewish, in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 14, he says, God has not left you without a witness that he has caused it to rain on you. He has given you good gifts in food and in crops and filled your hearts with joy. Now, if you're a Christian, that should take you aback because when Paul uses the word joy, it's a, it's a very deep, rich, packed with meaning kind of word. And for Paul, most Christians cannot accept that the Apostle Paul told non-Christians that God had filled their hearts with joy. How can they have joy? They don't know Jesus. Have you been told that? Listen, have you talked to people that aren't Christians? They experience joy all the time. And often they don't feel guilty for it. And we, maybe we need to learn or hear something. In other words, you know, I remember my friend Charlie Peacock um, did, a, did a whole record. I think it was called Love Life. It was all about sex and the beauty of sex and the gift and the wonder that it is. And Christian music flipped out about it. Why? It's a wonderful message. It's a true message. It's because we don't know how to talk about that. And so often non-Christians hear that even feel that meaning that sex is stamped with. Now, sometimes they distort it, but so do the Christians, you see? So you can't look at pop culture and say, well, you know, this is good and this is bad. No, it's all a mix. It's all a sort of jumbled up combination of hearing well what God is saying, dialoguing with him about it in tension, sometimes saying, yes, I agree, sometimes saying, no, I don't agree at all, and I refuse to submit. And that's true of Christian pop culture. It's true of Non-Christian culture proof stuff that's made by anybody who lives in this world, who was created for glory and has been, you know, sort of wrecked by the fall and has hope and longing for something so much bigger and better than what we experience now. All right? So Christians should be able to, to understand and to listen and to interact and even humble themselves and say, gosh, you know, there's certain baggage and certain filters that I bring to hearing what God is saying through his world that some of my non-Christian friends don't bring. And yet they have certain filters and certain baggage that they bring that filters out certain things that God is saying as well. We need each other. And you may think that's kind of a crazy thing. That seems sort of like a pluralistic thing to say. I don't know how many of you know anything about John Calvin, but I don't think you would regard him as sort of a religious liberal or a pluralist, right, to say the least, okay? Um, I think he gets a bad rap in a lot of cases. That's a topic for another convo. But a lot of Christians, you know, would regard him as pretty hardcore about what is true and what's not true. Fair? to say, pretty narrow even in his views about what is true, and yet in his institutes, which is sort of his explanation of what Christianity is about, he has this section where he talks about 
how we should listen. And if you wonder where in the world am I on this outline, I actually am following this outline. I'm on the back page now at the very top. This is more like, read this if you want to kind of go back over some of these ideas, this is a good, good way to do it. Um, but, but Calvin says this, and he's, in this context, in the Institutes, he's talking about Greek philosophers who aren't Christians. And he says, you know, he basically has this way of saying that all truth is God's truth. Maybe you've heard that, that phrase somewhere. It comes from John Calvin and from this little statement from the, the, the um, Institutes. He says this, if we regard, this is in the middle of that first paragraph at the top of the page too, if we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. That's pretty strong. <laughs> For by holding the gifts of the Spirit in slight esteem, we contemn and reproach the Spirit himself. I will tell you, I don't think most evangelical Christians would agree with that at all. And yet Calvin is absolutely right as far as the Bible goes. Paul says it. Isaiah says it, for instance. He says, you know, to, to learn and to glorify God and learn wisdom even from farming. And Isaiah is not saying that only Jews know how to farm and they're the only ones we can learn from. No. You know, it, 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 anyway, I could go on and on with that, but I think I've, I've made that point. So everything in the creation order is stamped with meaning. That means against the secular cultural theorists. See, this, this is why Christians of all people should be, care deeply about popular culture. If we care about people, we should care about popular culture because we should care about what people are hearing from God and saying to him. They sh we should care about that. N not only will we listen to, might hear something we ourselves learn from, and I suggest that you will all the time, but you need to hear, you need to care about what they're saying. Um, so in other words, pop culture is not meaningless. Secular cultural theorists want to say that it really is ultimately not rooted in anything other than power. Now, I don't, I don't know how much you guys get into that kind of stuff. Maybe in your sociology classes we talk about that sort of thing. And, you know, po you know, the creations of our culture are opportunities for one group to exercise power over another group. That is true. But what I would add to that is that they're taking stuff that's stamped with meaning to do that. There's a difference between saying that there is no meaning, therefore no group can have power over any other group, and it's un, un, inappropriate to use culture um, to exercise power over another group. Now, the reason that, that, we don't, that it's inappropriate to use culture to exercise power over the other people is because God has stamped it with meaning. And it's, it's not about you building your own kingdom and you taking over other people. All right? I, if you want to read more about that, you can... Um, Google the article that I took these excerpts from, and you can read more about that. All right. Um, let me talk about this thing about idolatry. And, uh, and then I'm almost done, and then we're going to open it up to questions. All right? So hang on just a couple more minutes. I know it's hot in here. Not only are you sitting on the floor, but it's hot and miserable. Has everybody gotten the scanner as it went around? Anybody missed it? Oh, wow. Good. Great. Um, here's the thing. The Bible has a concept, Christians, you need to know about, um, called idolatry. Now, Often we discard this idea because we think we live in this modern, sophisticated age. We're not bowing down to little gods. You guys see the movie Gladiator? You know, you remember that scene where, you know, he's got his little household gods and he sets them up and, you know, kind of prays to them, bows down to them. Okay, that's not probably going in on in some of your houses, probably not going on in most of your houses, I wouldn't think. And yet, what the Bible says idolatry is, is taking created things and using them 
to sort of sort of be a sort of a false or a um, pseudo or what is the word I'm looking for a replacement God. In other words, I'll give you a good example. Um, the Bible says that that relationship with God should give you peace, hope, and security. But in our culture, one of the things that sort of contends or vies for allegiance as a provider of peace, hope, and security is money. And college education as a way to get money to provide peace, hope, and security. If you have money, then you can, you can do different things in your future than if you don't have money, right? If you have enough money, you have financial security. There's a famous Christian man who's written a book called Financial Peace. We think about that, and I'm not knocking on that per se, but just to say that in our culture, money functions in ways that God himself is supposed to function. And again, it's not just people outside of the church who are involved in this. People inside the church are involved in this too. We're always wanting to kind of put, give our allegiance to things that we think will help us conquer our fears, gain power in a, in a scary world. Um, and so idolatry is a constant issue. The way to think about it in this context today is whenever we try to rewrite what God is saying, we are involved in idolatry. In other words, God says, I created all this stuff for my glory, for your enjoyment as well. As a matter of fact, you know the Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, who often is regarded as, you know, again, a sort of a narrow killjoy kind of guy, he says it is a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage because of sex and foods which God created to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. The, the Bible itself says sex and food are a great thing, and it's a doctrine of demons to teach otherwise. Okay? And, and yet, sex can often become what you're living for. Right? We, we try to say God has stamped it with a certain amount of meaning, but we try and make it say something else, right? Um, this is this whole idea of idolatry. There's a battle going on um, over meanings. Now, this also means, you know, that Christians, you should never participate in taking in popular culture uncritically. Because, again, there is a battle for meanings. Not only are you missing an opportunity to hear something God is saying, possibly, but you yourself are engaged now in having to think about meaning. So I'm not saying because of all this stuff I'm saying is true that you just listen and take in everything uncritically. No, you should be critical of everything. What I'm actually saying is you should be more critical than you have been, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, because everything of culture is a map of reality. And some of the maps, you know, go along with reality for a while and then they differ. And some of them don't go very far at all before they break down with reality. I happen to find, you know, breaks down in reality in all kinds of places, and yet I still find truth in all kinds of places. That's what Calvin is getting at, okay? Um, another another la last thing here. Um, this redemptive cultural work that we're supposed to be part of is always done in this tension of recognizing idolatry in ourselves, idolatry, brokenness, sin in our world, but also a longing for hope. And Christians, when they engage in either making popular culture or taking part of popular culture, should always expect that kind of tension to exist. Okay. Um, thoughts or, or questions? I know it's a big topic, but don't be shy. Is, is this helpful to think about sort of a, a bigger picture? 
it's just it's just way too narrow to talk about this is good and this is bad. And um, I, I'm afraid to say that often my fellow Christians are way too content with nice, easy little labels so that they don't have to think about things. And I pray that you guys won't be a generation content with that. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that as a Christian you can bring in the word of God and anything so long as it's the Lord's work in your life? Or does it have to be like, I mean, I know a lot of Christians think it's just going to be like glorifying God yeah. and like the witness thing or something. Yes. Great question. Great question. But, um, just for benefit of anybody listening to this recording, do I believe that you can do anything and bring glory to God as long as you, what, how do you put it, your attitude is right? As long as you're seeking his will. Um, I think one of the great traps um, that Christians fall into is thinking that the only good things come from them perfectly seeking God's will. Now, I would say God gets glory out of all kinds of things, whether you're seeking his will or not. So I, I would say that first to a Christian, you know, take that pressure off. Certainly you're supposed to seek his will. But take away this idea that unless I perfectly seek his will, everything I do is crap. That, why would you get up in the morning um, if that was true? When have you ever perfectly sought God's will? See, Christians believe that what you do is, is beautiful to God, not because you did it perfectly, though we strive to do it as well as we can, but because of the relationship. Calvin actually has this wonderful picture. Now, his, his version is sort of 16th century. But I'll, tell, I'll bring it into the 21st century. When my little boys come home from school, or my little two-and-a-half-year-old Amelia now has just started scribbling little pictures, right? We put it on the refrigerator not because it's a great work of art, but because of our relationship with her. Okay? So God looks at the productions of Christians uh, not, he does care about doing it skillfully, but the ultimate thing that matters is you're in a relationship with him. And, and, the, and so that's, that's the first thing. So, and, and I would say even if you're not tr- seeking to glorify God, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you're using stuff that God made to glorify himself and his glory still breaks through. You can't help it. I tell people, you know, and sometimes Christians get really upset, but I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, Marilyn Manson uses the creativity God gave him to curse God's name. He can't help it. He probably wouldn't be happy about me saying that. But from the Christian vantage point, that's what I believe to be true. And I think I'm on solid ground biblically to say that. I think it freaks a lot of Christians out. And I, I think sometimes we get in this sort of silly argument about, does this glorify God more than this? Like glorifying God is sort of this kind of commodity that you could easily um, measure. No, everything fails to glorify God as it should, and nothing fails to glorify God at some level because he has left himself with a witness, even in the cultural production of people who don't love him. So that's what I would say. Other thoughts? Come on now, don't be shy. We have to have some interaction for this to be a convo, right? So by that, basically you're saying that even though it's not, it's not in a way that, like, from a Christian perspective that we would desire, that mm-hmm. Marilyn Manson does certain things that it still, it still brings glory to the Lord even in... Yeah, here's, here's the interesting thing. Yeah, she's still kind of on the Marilyn Manson thing. Do I think God gets glory from that anyway? Um, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. After the fall, after, after the fall of creation, right, um, God says to Noah that if anybody kills another person, 
that their life should be forfeit, and, and we can debate that, death penalty. Okay, I'm not talking about that. But the reason is important, because mankind still bears the image of God to such a point that God cares when that image is defaced. You may not know it or, or not, but this is the reason, for instance, that you know Christians have been concerned historically about cursing because it's a defacing you know, of God's creation. It's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says anybody that calls his brother Raka, which means fool, is liable to the judgment of hell. That seems pretty extreme for calling somebody a fool, but it's because you're attacking the image of God in man, and God takes that very seriously. That means um, that the best way to regard mankind, whether they're Christians or not, is that man is a glorious ruin, that we're not what we used to be, we're not what we should be, we're not what we will be, but we still bear the image of God, however twisted and distorted. It's the reason that, you know, for instance, you can reduce all of what the Bible says to one commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's why Jesus could say you can also, you know, talk about it in a twofold way. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. How does love your neighbor flow out of loving God? Because your neighbor is made in the image of God. And all of the other laws and the prophets and the commandments are, come from those two, which really is to say they all come from that one, that our understanding of God and man and the image of God should be deeper and richer than it is. I think you know, Christians really downplay creation as well. They tend to have, Christians tend to have more of a Gnostic view of creation, thinking that the body is less spiritual than my quiet times. And you hear people talk about, I just want to be an empty vessel and let Christ, God flow through me. That kind of talk is not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't want you to just be sort of this empty vessel that God flows through. It wants you to be somebody made in his image, seeking to glorify him um, with all the gifts that he's made you in a world that is full of created stuff. The, the God is really concerned and really cares about physical stuff, including human beings, including those who aren't um, even in a relationship with him, you know, as, as we would desire as a Christian. So that, that's what I would say. But that's worth thinking on, thinking about and chewing on, because for a lot of you, that's, you know, that sounds like heresy. Um, a lot of you, I think, have probably been brought up in churches or Christian traditions that really want to make this a real black and white issue. And what I'm telling you is it's a much grayer issue when you're thinking about pop culture, when you think about any culture, when you're thinking about people that you interact with. And it's not at all helpful, nor is it true, nor is it faithful to what the Bible says about God's revelation, about sin, and about grace, to think that we Christians have got it all right and that those people outside have got it all wrong. And here's the thing. If you don't understand what the Bible's saying as a Christian, it puts you in this profound tension. I, I meet Christian musicians all the time. I used to be in this industry. A lot of my friends are still in that world. None of them listen to Christian music. None of them listen to Christian music. That I know, they, they don't like it. They, they don't, it doesn't provide them inspiration. It's sort of this great sham that's going on. Um, and yet some of them feel really guilty about that because they feel like, well, if I'm a Christian, I should like this stuff better than this. Um, there's a guy, a Christian writer named Walker Percy, who said one time, bad books lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. And I would tell you, as you think about being a college student, think about that. Bad political visions lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. Maybe they're too optimistic. Maybe they're too pessimistic. Bad, um, bad public policy lies. Uh, bad art lies about the human condition, usually. Um, and, and we don't want to lie. And I don't think non-Christians want to lie either. And I think that we can help each other say, well, I've heard something. Now, Christians believe 
that the authoritative understanding of what God is speaking in creation comes to us from the Bible. That apart from the Bible, our understanding of what God is saying in creation is always um, uh, not quite complete, I would say. And yet God speaks truthfully through creation. The problem is we don't hear it right sometimes, and he hasn't said everything there is to say through creation. But the same problems come up with the Bible. It's true, but we often don't hear it well. And I found sometimes my non-Christian friends can hear things God's saying even in the Bible that I didn't notice. That because I've been brought up to hear some things and think some certain ways, I miss things that the Bible is saying. I think the church, for instance, has missed a lot of what the Bible says about social justice. Yeah. Unbelievers. Yeah, Paul says in 1 Corinthians to not be yoked with unbelievers. I think that what I'm not ta- I'm not talking about sort of a covenant bonding. I think you know there he's particularly talking about marriage, and I think that what I'm saying actually has implications for that. That while we, you may really feel a resonance with a, somebody who believes very differently with you about the world, you should expect that. But yet ultimately, the Bible would say that you should be marrying or bonding yourself for life with somebody who agrees about the basic kind of structure of reality. And practically, of course, there's lots of reasons to support that. Um, it, it's difficult to go into that situation and say, well, we agree at this level, but at the ultimate level of what is ultimate bedrock, how we look at the world, there's a, there's a breakdown or a difference. Um, that's, that's difficult. And it's difficult to actually come into the bonding that marriage is supposed to be at the full level. Um, not just a sexual level, but one flesh is much bigger than that in the Bible. Um, so I think it's talking about that. I don't think it means that we can't listen to what unbelievers are saying, because the same guy who said that, Paul, um, quoted Greek poets in his speeches. And part of his rabbinic training did not include reading Greek poets. He, he read that stuff because he thought it was helpful, not only knowing how to communicate, but I suspect because of what he says about God giving joy to unbelievers, even through cultivated crops, that even through the creation and through the cultivation of creation, which is what we call culture, God has not left himself without a witness. So we'll talk about it more sometime. If you, know, if you um, ever want to you know, grab me for a cup of coffee and talk about this stuff more, I'm always